scripture for tonight is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man, that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than the other wild creatures that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, that you shall eat, not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The word of the Lord. both fun and a little bit daunting to try to tell a true or even true-ish story about the first humans. To create a narrative about something that is really beyond what you know. For instance, why is life difficult? Why do we hurt each other? Whoever wrote this story was maybe kind of trying to say why, I don't know if they did a very good job, but it's a hard job. After Adam and Eve talk to the snake and eat the fruit, God says, because of this, life is going to be painful and hard in lots of ways. In pain you shall bring forth children. That one really gets to me. So sad. 
When I try to figure out what's really important in my life, the one thing, maybe the only thing that I'm really certain about is loving my children. I just want to do that right. And I hurt them. I do that just by passing on my genes. Jeez. I know all the difficult things about my genes very well. I want them to have Buddhist monk genes, or happy-go-lucky genes, or Italian peasant genes. But they have my genes and Jim's genes. German, Norwegian, and that's just the genes. And then there's the living, breathing mess of me. Where and why and how did shame enter the world? Why do we fail at loving? It's such a fun and beautiful and satisfying thing to do. Why can't we do it better? Adam and Eve do something in the garden, and before you know it, one of their kids is murdering the other. Genesis is a book that is all about really messed up families. Noah gets drunk, and the text suggests, has sex with his son. Abraham almost kills his. Joseph's brothers get jealous of him and throw him in a hole and leave him for dead. I mean, how do you explain all that? Sadness and difficulty and violence and broken hearts and failure and terrible decisions and tragedy. You're trying to write something true about why? What is beyond words or comprehension? The beginning seems super hard, kind of like a lot of pressure. And you'd probably never imagine that 2,000 years later there'll be people who will take your words literally. Literally probably wasn't even a word yet or a concept. I don't know. These stories, the scholars say, were probably composed in the form that we read them, obviously not when Neanderthals were grunting around. But after the Hebrew people's lives had been devastated by the Babylonian Empire, for hundreds of years, their hopes and their dreams were gathered around the belief in the power of their God to protect them. That vision is crushed when the armies of the empire destroy their temple and their government and take them captive away from everything that they know. And they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon where they wept and their captives mocked them, saying, sing us some of the songs of Zion. The empire was threatening to encompass them, subsume them, inundate them with its stories. And they're trying to get it together. What are their stories? What narratives are they going to tell? And what narratives are they going to claim? What is their genesis? It's a counter-narrative to the empire's narrative. Super, ultra, wildly counter to the founding text of the religion of empire, which goes like this. I'm not making it up. In the beginning, there were two gods, Apsu, male, freshwater, and Tiamat, female, saltwater. 
The couple mated and had children, and apparently it was bothered by them, so they decided to kill the children. But the young gods got wind of the plot, and quickly acting, they killed the father. So Tiamat, the mother, rages and rages. Tiamat is this sort of serpent, dragon, huge, aquatic, monster, serpent, wild and mad and giant, monstrous embodiment of primordial chaos, serpent, big. So the kids choose one from among themselves who will dare to destroy their mother, Marduk. If Marduk's successful at killing his mother, his reward will be a royal city and a royal palace and to be supreme, unquestioned leader forever. So the deal was made and the battle begins. And the young Marduk does get the better of the old mother. The text describes the killing vividly and bloodily, his ripping her body apart. And it's out of the ripped apart corpse of the mother that the world is created. Babylon, the empire, was Marduk's reward. And he and his siblings move in. But they soon realize to keep the city clean and running involves tasks way below divine dignity. So they produce a new creature to do the city's tasks. Human beings. Marduk kills his stepfather using the bloody remains to fashion the new servants of the gods. That's the story of the first humans, according to the Babylonian Empire. Super violent. It's violence that defeats evil or chaos, whatever. It's violence that establishes and maintains peace and order. It's a pattern deeply embedded in the religion of empire. I think we're familiar with it, i.e., look around the world. In the Babylon story, the city is the center of the world, and the king and his palace is the embodiment of God, God incarnate. I think the Bible is a beautiful book. In that Babylonian empire story, Tiamat's body is ripped open and the world is made, and from the blood of a murder victim, humanity is born. In Genesis, God speaks, says, let there be, and there is life, all sorts of life, and it seems so gentle in comparison. It's so much more art than fight. There's no titanic, destructive, terrible battles. The lack of violence is almost astounding in comparison. It's all creation. God is super creative, makes the world like God doesn't want to be alone, really. Like God would like some companionship. God seems very generous. God makes a human not out of the blood of a dead corpse, But out of the ground with God's hands, God gives the human fish and food and a lush garden to live in. The human isn't merely a servant to keep the city tidy, doing the work that God doesn't want to do. It's like God involves the human in God's work. 
God makes animals, and he brings the animals to the humans to see what the humans will name them. Like God's interested in what the human will do. Interested in what names the human will make up. God just doesn't sound like this strict, rigid, autocratic, hierarchic, super control freak tyrant, really all worried about his or her status as supreme, all-powerful, unquestioned ruler. God makes the human in God's image. So God, not liking to be alone God's self, thinks the humans shouldn't be alone either. The animals seem nice, but they're not really companions the human can be intimate with. So God, using a bone that God gently takes out of Adam when Adam is deeply sleeping, no ripping, no death, no blood, takes the bone and around it sculpts for the human an intimate other. And they're naked together and unashamed, and it seems all sexy and warm and free. And it'd be nice if that lasted a while, but narratively anyway, things are moving along pretty quickly. And then, okay, there is a serpent. But you could hardly have a less Tiamat-like serpent. It's not some primordial beast all strong and raging. It's not really even very clearly an enemy. Tiamat roars and snorts wild and mad and giant dragon embodiment of primordial chaos. In Genesis, the snake talks practically funny to think of it in comparison to Tiamat and like wimpy it's crafty the narrative says the snake just poses a question it's not really a bad evil terrible violent question but it it seems like it does introduce the possibility of a distancing maybe messes with the intimacy Acts like God's not there in the breath and in the bones. Like God just walked out of the room. It's a little gossipy. Did God say you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Like implying something about God, like God is a little selfish maybe. The emperor keeps the best fruit for himself. That's something that everybody knows about a king. The fruit, the harvest, the fields, the gardens don't belong to the people. And the woman's like, no, no, we can eat of the trees. But then something starts to turn. You can hardly look at this and go, yeah, okay, now I understand why people suffer. Thank you. But there's something in it that seems accurate about what happens in relationships. Eve seems to get a little suspicious or something. Or anyway, she begins to interpret, and her interpretation isn't quite true. She says, God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and here she goes. God said, neither shall you touch it, or you'll die. Well, God never said, don't touch it. God just said, don't eat it. Touching and eating seem pretty different. 
There's all sorts of things you can touch but wouldn't want to eat where touching is good, but eating wouldn't be poison berries, azaleas, algae, daffodils, oak trees, your children. I mean, this could be kind of basic botany. There are fruits that you can smell and touch and look at and enjoy, but you shouldn't eat them or you'll die. Couldn't this just be what God was about? But it's like some doubts are introduced about the Creator's goodness. Doubts about God's desire to do what's best for humans. A lack of trust. Like God might be prohibiting the humans from eating what is really good. Because God is trying to keep something for God's self. And keep Adam and Eve at a distance. And the creative lover, intimacy maker, who drew so close as to blow into the nose of the humans, begins to look a little bit greedy. Is the creator in rivalry with humans? Scared that they'll get too close? The snake says, God said you'll die if you eat it. But you won't really. You'll just get what God's trying to keep for God's self. The snake suggests God is afraid that the humans will be like God's self. It doesn't really sound like the God who created humanity in God's image. The God who enjoyed seeing the humans name the animals. But the woman believes the snake and eats the fruit. And the partners don't die a physical death all, immediately, although they will eventually. But they do die to some sort of beautiful, trusting, loving freedom. They don't get wise. They don't get fulfilled. They don't seem to get some sort of power that they imagined God had and they envied. They get ashamed. They are humiliated, and they hide. They sew fig leaves together to cover their genitals. It's probably exactly how the Hebrew people felt sitting by the rivers of Babylon, humiliated. Their little nation flirted with the power, made deals with the kings of the world, and desiring power, power crushed them and took them captive. It seems like you might, in that situation, begin to ask some questions about power, about freedom, and how you lose freedom. The snake says if they eat the fruit, they will become like God. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe being God isn't all it's cracked up to be. Or maybe that's not the best way to put it but is different than you might think. Maybe being God is not at all like being an emperor, living in a palace with servants waiting on you. What the empire thinks of as good, power, wealth, glory, might seems a lot different from what God said was good, which seems a lot more egalitarian and expansive and inclusive every plant yielding seed, every beast, every bird, 
everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, every green plant, every morning and every evening. The creator doesn't sit on a throne. That seems like such an empire image of God. God gets God's hands dirty and puts God's mouth over the human's nostrils and blows breath into them, is intimately involved. What's God like? The mystery, what is beyond words. Maybe the world's image, our image, is almost always pretty off. God keeps trying to show us what God is like, but it's so hard to see. Maybe the image of God as all-powerful king of the world needs some revising. Jesus revises pretty dramatically. What is God like? Maybe the humans do become a little like God after they eat the fruit. And maybe it's just not the palace that they imagined. God suffers. The Romans mean it as a joke when they put the sign over the cross that says, King of the Jews. But that's some pretty beautiful irony. Look at God, humiliated. Talk about being in the place of shame. Jesus struggles in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus dies naked, hanging on a tree, and then is raised up in a garden. Eat this fruit, Jesus says, this time my body broken for you in love. It's like, okay, let's do it over again. Here's the tree, here's the fruit. Trust me this time. I love you. My gosh, I don't know how God could try any harder to show us that God's not in rival, rivalry with us, not shaming us, not trying to keep us at a distance, not your usual king. It just doesn't seem like God's standing back at a distance punishing God's creation for its transgression. It seems like it's God coming back again to try to show us again, regardless of the misunderstandings and the not-so-true interpretations. Show us that love is the foundation of the world. Show us the generosity. God's not keeping what's best for God's self. God offers God's self. Eat this fruit. Trust the love of God. 